0: Welcome back, folks, to another Ag Watchers. We've actually got a, an interesting joint venture here. Uh, Andrew, we've got um, one of the premier radio commentators from South Australia, FLO FM, Ricky Lambert, on with us. And I believe uh, we're going to kind of run this both as a, a radio session and an Ag Watchers podcast. So it's very interesting times. Um Fantastic to have you on with us, or us on with you, Ricky.
1: Yeah, Um, thanks for that introduction, Matt. Yeah, we're going to roll it all together, some sort of pudding of some sort, and we'll see what comes out of it. But yeah, looking forward to sharing this with our Flow listeners, and of course, great to be with you on Ag Watches as well.
2: So, so technically, we're co-hosting Flow FM today.
0: (laughs) Exactly, I mean, it's dangerous, dangerous times for the team at Flow, and getting us a little bit. It's like when. um, when someone goes on holidays and they hand across their Twitter account or their Facebook account to someone else to, you know for, for, for a few hours to, um, well, to I'm,
2: run I'm, I'm just pretty excited because we're finally getting a
1: paycheck I'm looking forward this <laughs> massive paycheck that we're going yeah. to get forced in the next a- couple of days just about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's ah, it, it can be right. dangerous handing over to other people we uh I I was at a football match uh, years ago now where uh the minister in uh, government minister had been given her own access to her Twitter account usually handled by her minders and uh sitting there and the minder was there freaking out because she'd tweeted something defamatory about another politician I <laughs> oh, just give her the keys for 5 minutes <laughs> this is what happens
0: so it'd be, it'd be remiss of us, Ricky, um, for, for those of the Flow FM listeners that don't listen to Ag Watchers, it'd be remiss of us not to do our, our introductory session of the Sixth Sense, which is a, a bit of a word association that we do when we're speaking to our guests, um, where we fire, fire a word at you and you just come back with the first thing that comes to mind. Are you, are you game? Are you up for that?
1: Oh, I love it. Yep, let's do it. Food my <laughs> And what am I meant to say? Hey, that was, Am I meant to say a word as well at the same time?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no that was actually that was actually quite. Um, we don't we don't script this stuff, and Andrew and I both came in with the same one. That's yeah. uh, but That's yeah,
2: But the, the purpose is uh, it's to get us warmed up uh, and get us on track. But what is what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of food inflation?
1: Well, lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, workforce. Andrew's still thinking. No, no, it's for you. Nope, That's for, for you. Oh, on workforce. I thought you were doing a food inflation one. When it comes to workforce, I think Pacific, Pacific workers. Oh, uh, live export of sheep on its way out. Black pudding, disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> we marked in this session here. <laughs> no, I know I know, I know, I know, I know all about the black pudding excitement <laughs> from one of you at least. <laughs> what else
2: have we got? Climate change.
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, it's uh, happening. Crocs footwear. A fashion item. <laughs> I'm a dad. Did you say <laughs> hot? Hot fashion item. Hot you hot? Hot fashion item. Yeah, I'm, I'm a dad. Uh, I've got some Crocs that only sort of get used when I'm going outside and I can't be bothered putting shoes on.
0: <laughs> well, you, I mean, you failed the black pudding one, but you, you've come back in again with the uh, with the love of Crocs. Yeah, so. with, with socks but-
1: on, with socks on inside the Crocs. Socks and crops. The thickest,
0: the thickest, longest socks you
2: can find, <laughs> up to your knees. So, but, it, but it is interesting. So, so food inflation, the first thing you think about is lettuce, yeah? it's
1: yeah, so just it know, because and, there's a lot kicking around in Australia at the moment about the price of lettuce. My wife's mentioning not just that, but broccoli and other things at the supermarket. So people are starting to suddenly feel that pinch.
0: I saw in uh, on social media as well just last week that there were some Chinese restaurants that aren't serving Sang choy bao, you know, the, the kind of mint stuff inside the lettuce because the lettuce is getting too cost prohibitive to be able to make a quit out of it so you yeah, it's impacting everyone really.
1: Yeah, I saw someone trying to be cheeky on social media saying they're getting rid of their cannabis crop, they're growing indoors hydroponically and growing lettuce instead.
2: <laughs> well, you know, it's it's a, it's a profitable industry if you if you if you got some lettuce on the go. But I think look, looking back at that, it, it, uh, that food inflation, it is really interesting to see that food is finally in this sort of the mind of of the average consumer now, because you know people complain when fuel prices go up, when diesel price goes up, that type of thing, electricity costs, interest rates. But in recent years, people in Australia and the West in general haven't really had much to complain about when it comes to food. Now food is food's massively cheap. Like even even last night, I uh, went to the gym and then I went to Coles and I, I picked up a steak. You know, treat myself. And it was still only twelve dollars for steak, which was a nice, good steak. And I thought it's still actually pretty cheap. So food is still, even though food's going up, it's still not that expensive, really.
1: Yeah, I co-hosted, and, and I think. I co-host a breakfast show here on Flow, and uh, we have pulled up, you know, we have this On This Day in History sort of reminiscent section, and I pulled up because it was something about Pizza Hut's first restaurant opening, the ad from 1992, 131166, Pizza Hut Delivery, and the, and the price of the pizzas, two pizzas for $19.90. I said, well, that's that's what you pay today for a pizza, so, you know, for two pizzas, and you know, from a cheap Domino's Pizza Hut style, it's what you do, so I think that's a good indicator, isn't it, that the food price has been reasonably well contained in Australia. It has been. It has been. And that, and the other aspect too, I think, is not just the outright price you're paying, but the proportion
0: of the, the normal spend. So what you, you know, if you look at the overall wage that you're getting paid, how much of that wage is going on items like food? And it's a, it's a small amount. I know Andrew, you've done some work on that, looking at the proportion that we spend in Australia and the Western world compared to other countries, how much they spend on their food as part of their overall wage.
2: Yeah. If you, if you basically chart it around the world and uh, you've got the, the sort of the left-hand side, relative to ten to fifteen percent, and that's basically UK, USA, Canada, basically all these Western countries, and um, basically European countries, and, and, and the US, and, and as in Oceania. And then it, as as you go further to the right, it gets higher and higher until you get to the Middle East and Africa, where it's you know forty-five percent of the average income above is spent on food. And that's, that's the key thing. Like food inflation for us is, is an inconvenience, but we're not going to starve. And that's the reality. Whereas people in the rest of the world, they're still facing the same food inflation. Um, and I think that's, that's probably an important thing to consider I, I hear quite a lot that it's, you know, because of the government and, and whichever color it is, you know, the Labour government's only been in for three weeks, four weeks. So we can't blame them. We can't blame the old one either. Uh, because it's nothing really to do with the government. It's a globally driven food inflation period, and well, inflation of everything really. Uh, so it's not one country that's causing it. Well, actually, that's a lie.
0: Probably is okay, We can we can border. blame we can we can blame one government, but they're not. We can, uh, we can blame not, one sorry, one our government,
2: government. Not our government. But we can blame the Russian government because that is a big driver of it. Big driver of it is is them um, invading Ukraine and. You know, taking away huge supplies of corn, wheat, barley, and sun oil off the market. So, if anyone wants to blame anyone, blame Putin.
1: Now, do we want to pull out the tinfoil hats here and see if we want to blame Russia as they always premeditated creating a food crisis to get outcomes going into Ukraine, or we think that's just been a secondary outcome of all the other beef they was that they had about Ukraine?
2: Look, it's uh, it's 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 just a side effect of them invading Ukraine. As soon as they invaded Ukraine, then export flows from that part of the world going to stop. That's not a that's not a conspiracy. That's just a secondary factor. However, it's pretty clear at the moment is that they are using it as a as a bargaining chip. They know that everyone's concerned about the Middle East and North Africa and instability caused by lack of food. And so, what they're doing is they're saying, "Well, yeah, we'll remove the." Uh, Remove the sanctions, and we'll, we'll, we'll allow grain to flow from Ukraine. But we want you to look at the sanctions first.
0: I
1: saw you. Uh, so, sorry, Andrew. I saw you posting something on Twitter. I think about um, Joe Biden's not sending the tanks in; he's sending the silos in. Have we that got that right? <laughs> he's trying to help store stuff off the border of Ukraine.
2: Yeah, well, because like at the moment the ships aren't flying and that's when how grain going to get out of the country. So the idea is we they send it on train into Europe, and then from Europe onto ports there. Look, it's, it's it's a really popular sort of policy to right? we'll build, build some silos. Fantastic. Huge amount of problems with that. A, it's going to take a while to actually do that and do it properly. Uh, the reason why logistics can't really flow into Europe all that easily is because in Ukraine, they use a different rail gauge to Europe. So they've got to change the trains or change the, the, the bogies underneath them. So the idea is they can get the grain off quicker in temporary silos and reload. Problem you got then is, well, if it's successful, it's going to be a disaster. If it's successful, you get, you know, 20 million tons going to Poland. Well, that's going to overflow all of their own logistics networks. Poland's a big producer of grain. And I used to work for a company that owned a port in, in Poland. So all of a sudden you've got 20 million tons having to get out the same port. They're not designed to automatically just have another 20 million tons go through We can do that here. And so there's all these unintended consequences of, of any government action, uh, and the reality is that um, the world needs to see Ukrainian grain moving out through the ports. And there's a lot of discussions about it at the moment, but there's so many moving parts, and uh, it's hard to see them getting to any form of uh, amicable agreement.
0: The, um, the other, the other aspect of it too is, as well as the the grain is one side of the inflation story, but you've got a country like Russia that's, you know, a key exporter of of petrol and petrochemicals and, and also fertilizers as well. So, you know, they're the other, they're the other aspect. You know, the gas, the gas increases into Europe in terms of prices that have been flowing through then to the fertilizer uh, production costs are also uh, all stemming from the fact that there's the sanctions there and there's this issue with, um, with Russia invading um, Ukraine, so so you know the grains one part, but then there's all these other inflationary pressures through energy prices, through fertilizer, and that's that's going to flow through to all areas of the you know, economy and transport and and agriculture, and it's, it's kind of overarching a whole heap of the economy, and and then that, then that leads through with the. CPI increases and we start to see the likes of um the Federal Reserve that have just risen rates uh 0.75 basis
1: points overnight so yep. it's kind of like a, a snowballing effect Which is the biggest hike uh, since nineteen ninety four? So it's a massive hike. But you know, thinking of America, people were sceptical about America's involvement in wars in the Middle East. uh, Whenever there was, and they sort of thought, well, maybe that's got a lot to do with oil. Uh, There's a lot of oil shortage caused by the Russian conflict. Is the, the America's reluctance to get as involved as they did in the Middle East simply a factor of Russia's relative military power to each of those Middle Eastern nations like Iraq?
0: Oh yeah, I mean it, it, certainly um, the the Yeah, you know, it's hard. It's, you know from an American perspective, when you're going in up against hard, hard to go up against the nuclear power. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah, you know. Then,
2: uh, I guess I guess, it's, I guess it's a bit like in the school. You know, you're not going to go up against the biggest building, are
1: you? Yeah, yeah that, that the nuclear threat, that mutually assured destruction is probably what uh, yeah has prevented a bigger move from the Americans in the Ukraine as they would have as they did in the Middle East. Yeah,
0: part, part of the reason behind the politics of, of not wanting to have, you know, the whole, the whole invasion of Iraq, obviously, you know, in hindsight, it was shown that some of the intelligence wasn't quite as accurate as what, what we would have hoped it to be in terms of the weapons of mass destruction that Iraq were, were, were amassing. But, you know, part of that reason and part of the reason why we don't want to see the Iranian government, um, from a Western perspective, get, get access to, um, you know, kind of military-grade um, uranium and, and that kind of um, weaponry. Is because of that concern that that's another another kind of um, you know kind of counterparty uh, that's got access to that to that um, quite dangerous uh, nuclear nuclear weaponry. So you've got to try and limit who's got that. I think these are the problems that it has. That when you've got um, a country like Russia, hell,
1: what um, what what was it? Sorry. No, you go. Well, I was just wondering. You know, uh, this war is, like when we're recording this, about 112 days old. But I think the um, the Afghanistan war set records in terms of how long that went. What does a protracted war with Russia, Ukraine actually end up looking like when it comes to? We're talking about one cropping season not being available. What about if it's multiple seasons and a, a continued uh, denial of fuel and also those other inputs that we need for farms uh, coming out of uh, that Russia, Ukraine region?
2: Like I think it's. And I think that's my biggest fear is that. There doesn't seem to be the appetite to stop from either side, and I can understand from the Ukrainian point of view, you know, you're you're protecting your homeland, but from the Russian point of view, there doesn't seem to be much appetite for for stopping. And I guess if we look at you know Russian involvement in Syria, you know, which we didn't really really looked at because it wasn't considered that important, I guess, is that they they continued there for six years. And the reality is, they've had a proxy conflict in Ukraine since 2014 anyway. Right up until now. So you could argue that this conflict could potentially go on for quite some time. And, and that has a lot of concerns for, you know, food stability, not just for this season, but, but following seasons. And like you say, a lot of products come out of, of you know, Russia and Ukraine. In, and if we even forget about agriculture for a second, titanium, titanium, the majority of that comes from Russia. Uh, rare earths, a lot of them come out of there. Um, Xenon, and um, there's a whole bunch of different minerals and chemicals that come out of, of Russia, and uh, we've become reliant on that. And now global trade flows have to change, and and that's expensive, and that's where we're going to have a lot of these issues where you know inflation is going to be a fairly a fairly big issue. in
1: in the coming years. When we've talked in our regular interviews for Friday's Country Viewpoint program for Flow, we've uh, sort of looked at the futures side of it sometimes and, you know, as I understand it as a layman, it does seem to me that Australia usually wasn't a big factor in futures prices on grains, but are we starting to see us come into the frame if people are starting to be sceptical about a a short war in the Ukraine, but rather a longer one?
2: from, From a wheat futures point of view, we've always had an influence on it, because Wheat futures are driven by the global supply and demand situation and we are still a, a considerable part of that global supply chain because we have a small population and large exports eh, eh, comparatively speaking uh, but i think there will be more of a reliance on australia look at the end of the day and provided we don't have a drought in the next couple of years eh, we'll have grain to supply but we've also got you know Good business processes. It's stable. You can you can buy from Australia without too much of an issue. And so, uh, the world will become more reliant on, on on us, but also other countries like the USA, France, Germany, uh, Argentina, Brazil, all these countries that produce grain. Um, well, if there's any issues in those countries, uh, whilst there's an ongoing conflict well, that is clearly going to be uh, a considerable issue for, for food supply chains. The world is very tight, and it needs to uh, grow whatever it can. But that's where, where it comes down to it, is uh, whilst, the, whilst, whilst farmers have good prices, uh, they've got an incentive to grow it. They've got an incentive to plant, and that means putting in more area. And the biggest risk in this whole, whole market for farmers is that Ukraine reopens and then we'll see the market collapse? Because we don't actually know what's going to happen in Ukraine. I, I have a fear that the conflict will last a long time, but if it stops and it probably will stop without anyone even um, realizing that it's going to stop, it'll just it'll probably be a very quick thing. Then uh, we will see these prices get smashed.
1: There was a recent. Uh,
0: <laughs> you go on, Matt. I was just going to say, just on the point you made earlier, Ricky, just on the length of the potential length of the conflict. I was thinking back to the, you know, historically that, you know, the times we've seen this type of a, which is essentially the supply shock that the world's experiencing, right? And it's the, it's the seventies, it's 73 and 79 when we had two spikes to, to oil price and that then pushed the global, um, economy into a, into a, Initially, a recessionary phase, but then with the increasing of interest rates to, to kind of combat inflation. Back then, um, then it, it turned into a stagflation scenario, which is those that aren't economically um, aware is a is a combination of high inflation and high prices, and also low growth, um, so low employment, you know, and and higher unemployment, and and that that just those two years of seventy three and seventy nine, where we had those fairly short spikes to the supply chain. That was enough to push, you know, most of the 80s across the world was a recessionary phase, um, you know, with, with unemployment and with, you know, kind of working through the, I guess the, you know, the, the supply shocks of the 70s were felt right through the 80s. Uh, and it wasn't, wasn't really until the kind of late 80s, you know, into the early 90s when, when the economy started, global economy started to get back on track again. So it took, it took a, you know, at least a decade nearly, um, for that to flush through. And, and I think we are, while we're not in stagflationary times just yet, we are um, heading certainly towards the US recession, um, and you know, and coming out of COVID, places like China that are still struggling to keep you know COVID under control, and, and and fairly happy to lock down big cities like Shanghai and potentially Beijing. That's going to have implications for the Chinese growth levels. And if you've got two big economies like the US and China that are going through a, a tough time, and all this inflationary kind of spirals and, and interest rate increases, I could see a scenario where we do get pushed into a stagflationary environment,
1: and that could last for a number of years. Yeah, your mind went exactly where mine was going, Matt. And look, going into the zoom out on the historical level, just a, in the last week or so, we were in our sort of on this day in history, marked a, that it was in uh, in 1950. 1950- uh, 1950 uh, we stopped rationing butter in Australia we were rationing it for 7 years and it takes me to sort of canola and cooking oil scenario we've got in the world right now but on that macro level guys like, we're seeing countries start to restrict their own uh, exports to try and you know look after their own supplies, to what extent do you see things you know in a historical context how much are we going to see maybe a shift to more protectionist policies short term or are we going to see a swing back into popularity of protectionism?
2: Protectionism it's gonna be but uh, like I think we've actually like we've actually been through a series of protectionism and sort of guess, nationalism over the past let's say five six years, man. Yep. You know, we saw we saw Trump in China with the trade protection sort of policies there. We've seen various sort of you know protectionist sort of policies around the world. Brexit is probably a symptom of that sort of populist uh, protectionism. And I think when we when we look at it from a point of view now, with even in the last couple of months we had Indonesia banning palm oil exports, India banning wheat exports, or not banning them, but curtailing them. Uh, obviously the sanctions around the world and, and various counter sanctions. And I think that's that's what we're gonna see is the be an element of protectionism. In Australia, you know, I keep hearing a lot of people saying, Oh, we need to ban the exports of Meat sort of ban the exports of wheat and all this kind of stuff, we need to keep it in the country. But because, like as in my view, I think we we are more than well supplied for food, and uh, around the world uh, it, uh, in Australia because of that again that whole population and what we produce. But I think, and we go going back to your point, Matt, about stagflation. You know, you're only going to look back to 2008 when we had the sort of the global recession there, when Australia sort of weathered well that storm pretty well because of well we had China, yeah. And China was in that super growth phase in that sort of mid two thousands to well, probably what two thousand sixteen two thousand eighteen. It was a real strong growth phase there. Yep. And I guess the question is, that what happens if we have a major sort of global recession? Because we're probably talking about the potential for a recession on the scale of the GFC, aren't we?
0: Potentially. Yeah, different different factors leading up to it, yeah. of course. But yeah, but well. Possibly
2: some of those factors of that sort of mortgage sort of defaults in the U.S. will also come to play if we have stagflation.
0: Yeah, I mean the biggest the biggest problem with a stagflationary move is that from a from an economic policy perspective, there are limited options that the government has to, to oh, kind sure. of deal with it. Yeah, there's, there's, there are limited levers that they can pull. It's quite a it's quite a tricky conundrum when it comes to those macroeconomic policy things that can be done. You've almost got to just ride it out to a degree and make sure you just keep keep banging the top of inflation to try and keep inflation down, um, which but, means... But the other,
2: uh, the other, so what I'm sort of thinking as well is, let's say, for instance, you have that... Uh, you know, you have a global recession. Let's call it a global recession. yeah. global slowdown in the economy. Yeah? But at the same time, we don't have the protection from having a strong China, potentially, because we don't... There's the potential that
0: China's growth is going to slow. Yeah, know, that's always, right. That's, that's right.
2: Going. But so,
0: so the, over, the other half. overlay, the other overlay would be you've got yeah that that Chinese economic situation that's not as strong as it was that that helped us through the GFC, but also we're, we're coming off of a base where. The trade situation and the political situation with China, in, for some commodities, is a little bit tense.
2: <laughs> you know,
0: so we're not we're we're not kind of in that same strong trading position and, and reasonably, you know, um, amicable political um, situation. At least, I mean, it might change with the change of, of government. Whether there's a bit of a thawing, that's yet to see. Um, but yeah, it, it's not. We're not. Uh, from an Australian perspective, we're certainly not entering this phase. As strong as we were back in 2008 when the GFC hit.
1: When you mentioned
0: troubled waters,
1: yeah. When you when you mentioned the GFC and uh, um, I guess and even uh, the mortgage default issue, and you know, we're seeing central banks, you know, like you mentioned, the Reserve Bank in the USA putting it up three quarters of a percentage point during the re- week we recorded this. Which you know, I've I tweeted. I think that'll see the Reserve Bank even more emboldened to push. You know, they went half a percent in the June meeting. They could go half a percent or more, perhaps in the July one, where do we see the risks in terms of, I guess, mortgage default or banks imposing pressures on lenders that they were trying to encourage to take out um, loans from a governmental sense to make sure we stimulated the economy? You know, when won't we start feeling the pinch on that front?
2: I reckon we'll start feeling that pinch. I, I think it's a generation, like I was talking to somebody this morning about it, yeah, and it's it's a generational thing as well. Like, I'm a, I'm a millennial, so, and I think it'll be millennials who, from a housing point of view, probably the most impacted. Relatively lower wages compared to, you know, Gen X and the, uh, the boomer generation. And uh, But also, they probably bought in the market. Anyone who's bought a house who's 25 to 40 is probably bought at a reasonably high level. And probably at a time when interest rates were low. And, you know, like a, as a recent some stat, somewhere that even like a 2% increase in, uh, in interest rates would put a lot of them into like a danger zone in terms of maybe being able to service their mortgage. So I think it would be that. But I think older people who maybe have a, a smaller mortgage or bought the house at a house at a better time might not be as heavily impacted. But it's definitely going to cause a concern if we go up to you know, five, six, Percent uh, in the coming
1: in the coming years. Well, when I think about the farmers, there's a legendary sort of just, um, I guess, image of the farmer going missing when the bank manager came visiting during the recessions in the '80s. But uh, you know, when it comes to farms, we've seen such a huge increase in the prices people are paying for farms. Uh, when things get tight, if we have an El Nino swing around instead of a La Nina, we're going to see farms going to come under pressure as well. Oh, oh, look, I think
0: there's a, there's a there's a risk there. Yeah, at the moment, you've got. Um, particularly in the ag space, you know, yes, they're paying more for labour. They're paying more in interest rates now. Increasingly, they're paying more for input. Um, but at least on the positive side, they're also receiving more for what they're producing, whether it's wheat or livestock. But yeah, a, a turn around back to a a drier scenario, which which is on the cards. If you look at the, the the normal historic kind of cycle between wet to dry, generally speaking, it's you know within about two to three years of a, of a wet period which is what we're experiencing now you go back to a, a drought of at least one or two years so somewhere in the middle of this decade I think we're going to see a drought of at least one or two years um, and that that will put pressure obviously the drought isn't good for the for the broad acre farming it impacts the yield um, there Andrew could t- talk to you more about that but from a livestock perspective um, you know drought droughts going to be one of those things that we'll see um, significant turnoff of, of sheep and cattle again and and, and will be coming, if, if the numbers prove correct and, and the herd and the flock is rebuilding at the pace we're seeing it now, in a couple of years' time we will have quite a few animals to turn off so you will see higher slaughter, higher production and that generally leads to lower pricing. So it may not be a complete crash but certainly it'll be low pricing for those livestock and potentially in an environment where you've still got high inputs and high cost of fertiliser and you know, high labour costs um, and high interest rates. So it could, you know, it could be a bit of a, a scenario where, where the margins in, in farming comes under pressure and that's going to then flow through to, um, to farm values.
1: Well, when we did that word association exercise earlier, you asked me about live exports, and for our friends in Western Australia, much more exposed on that front, you know, when you were talking about, I guess, poorer countries, uh, we had a discussion here on Flow about the debate about live exports. In fact, I asked Murray Watt, the new agriculture minister, recently about that debate. He said, look, it will be phased out with just, you know, holding out on what the timeline would be. And he was talking about manufacturing or processing that meat locally, which would be halal slaughter, et cetera. But as uh, Wayne on our sh- morning show said... A lot of these people, when they receive the live export back there, they put it in a vehicle of some sort, take it back to their village and process as and when they need it. It's just counter-cultural for them to receive refrigerated meat. Like That's I think, right. I
2: think, like I think uh, sorry that, but I just think it's, it's. I guess it's a bit naive and a bit sort of Western-centric to for us to say, okay, we're going to stop that trade and you're going to buy our box meat. Um, in, in an ideal world, that's what would happen. In, in a perfect world, we would have abattoirs in Western Australia that could process everything we require. We could send it over as, you know, chilled meat on the back of the plane or or, or whatnot, and get a good premium for it and, and, and do do fantastically. That's not quite the reality on the ground. In, in it, I guess there's an old saying: uh, the customer is always right. And uh, if you don't do it, someone else will. And that's what happens in markets. We, we see that with, with barley. Barley's a great example, yeah? We no longer supply China. So, China hasn't stopped buying barley. China, in fact, has bought more barley. It's just bought shed loads more of it from Argentina, Canada, France, and Ukraine, but just none from us. Exact same thing happens with the live export of sheep. Okay, they, they actually, in Kuwait's a good example, biggest, biggest buyer of, of sheep and goats live, they just buy less from us, but they buy more from Jordan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Sudan, South Africa. And so all we see is that, well, actually, somebody fills the void. And that's what will happen. And because, you know, live sheep is, a, is as much a cultural thing.
1: Well, I can't help it. And,
2: yeah. and, and a refrigeration thing issue.
1: I can't help but mention, and just we will, we, I won't digress, want to stay on the livestock front, but it feels the same on that climate change question you threw me with word association as well. Australians want to feel good that they're contributing with uh, wind turbines and solar farms and big batteries, etc. But plenty of other countries are putting on coal or using it. We can tell ourselves we're doing our thing the right way, but uh, other countries are doing their own thing and we're not really making any input. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. can do, we can only do what we can do in our own
2: backyard. We can't control the rest of the world. But, and but again... Just- all we're doing by buying exports is by uh, is is giving that market to someone else.
0: Yeah, just on that on that live export space as well. That, that you know, you mentioned about the the plan will be to transition to a greater proportion of, of, of boxed and chilled and children frozen product going. But there are, I mean, there are supply chain issues just transferring across from that as well. You know, from from certainly from an in country perspective. Um, There's the cultural and religious aspect that they do prefer for some, for some instances to have the live slaughter there, you know, in that country. But then there's also the, the cold chain kind of logistics. So there are countries out there, um, that take live animals. And part of the reason is because the wet market style is what suits their infrastructure in terms of, you know, cold chain logistics. Um, not, you know, not, not all of the, um, customers that are overseas taking those live export animals have the capacity to store meat, in the freezer at home like we do, you know. Um, so so there's that kind of Western element where we just assume that everyone's standard of living um, is as high as ours in terms of having access to the ability to cold-store meat and freeze it at home or go to a supermarket and get it that way. Um, there's, there are preferences for those wet market types um, and that's driven partially by that refrigeration aspect. But then, from the supply chain within Australia, we've also got you know, and particularly in West Australia, you've got only a handful of um, processes. So, you know, there's a there's a con- capacity constraint kind of thing too. That that um, you can't just click a click your fingers and have a new abattoir. And even if you can over time invest money and build new abattoirs, new facilities, you need to have the staff, the skilled staff that are there to be able to. You know, operate and 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 to uh, get the volumes through. Um, currently, if you look at abattoirs across Australia, they're running at about fifty or sixty percent capacity. Now, part of that's because we've got a small flock and a small herd at the moment. We're rebuilding at this stage, but um, you know that that's part of the constraint. But the other aspect is that if they did have the big numbers coming through, um, they won't. They don't have the staff to be able to um, process so you know it's not you don't just click your fingers here and and and, and make those supply chain issues happen and i think if covid if covid's shown us anything um, having a more diverse supply chain and and having access to multiple options is the preferred option really when it comes to um, these issues you know we saw we saw some um some problems a lot of a lot of those boxed and chilled uh, meat products actually piggybacked the um the the flights the international flights going in and out uh, the passenger flights so for a period there, when COVID hit and everything shut down with those um, passenger flights, there had to be alternative arrangements made to to contract out um, flights to get you know meat products go you know sent overseas as a boxed item because you know there was no passenger flights going and and that's where again the live export space was still running ships. So, you know, that kind of diversity of supply chain, I think, is an important thing that we need to consider. Um, You know, diversity in any of those markets is something that makes a market much more robust any of These types of shocks that can come along.
1: Yeah, as you talk about that, Matt, it makes me think about something. While we're still on four legs on the wool side, I think the now former coalition government was uh, might have even put out the tender, or certainly was trying to stimulate a processing option on the wool front, domestic, you know, either domestically or in our region, in alternative to China. You know, is it, I don't know the Albanese incoming government have said, you know, we want to be a country that makes things. does that going to extend to food and fibre, or are we kidding ourselves? Is it more realistic, maybe in Southeastern Asia? We're going to see some extra processing capability come on, so we're not so reliant, say, on China.
2: Look, I think I think around the world there will be a bit more focus on you know shorter supply chains. I think we probably that's part of the reason why we're going to see inflation is because we're not going to be reliant on exporting our production around the world. In a lot of cases, but it's very hard to do that. You know, we can't produce everything we want. Like if you look at something like an iPhone is a good example, yeah? We all want an iPhone, but it's produced with thousands of different parts that are produced in different parts of the world and then assembled somewhere. And so, realistically, we cannot produce everything we want in, in Australia. And we never will be able to. And let's be honest, not that I mean if you actually want to work in a factory, let's be completely honest. So how are we going to get staff to fill factories? And so, I think... We'll see more automation to, to get to that, uh, but in, in reality, I think you know there's only so far a country with a population of what twenty five to twenty seven million can actually do, and you know we don't even have a big enough domestic market in a lot of cases to even make it worthwhile. We're a tiny country, and so so I don't see us being able to to massively increase our our domestic uh, consumption and uh, production. But it might be a case of you know, more strategic relationships with with allied type of countries. Again, that comes back to that sort of trade blocks, but also sort of uh, uh, protectionism in, in, in a group form.
1: Now, on that automation front, I think John Deere threw us a PR statement not long ago talking about how they were going to put out a battery-operated automated uh, a tractor or something like that, uh, major forms of machinery within the next three or four years. Uh, with the farm labour shortage, uh, I'll put this to Murray Watt, the Agriculture Minister. I said, you know, when you've got this debate about the ag visa, um, Michael McCormick, the Min- shadow minister for Pacific, told me recently, look, we um, can't just rely on the Pacific, we need labour from elsewhere. And I said to Murray Watt, look, if you make it hard for us to get that labour on farm, they're just going to move towards automation, going to cut their losses and go, look, let's scale up and get bigger machines that do the work for us.
2: It already happened like, let's be honest like um, we, we've seen more maybe not through automation but we've seen you know bigger and bigger machinery over the last couple of decades we've seen larger larger farms look and that the reality is we, 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 we sort of grumble about you know reduced populations you know inability to keep the school running the football team whatever it may be yeah? The reality is that's because we've got far less people living in the country the reason we've got less people in living in the country is because we don't need as many people. We don't need, you know, if we've got a thousand hectares, we don't need dozens of people to be to be working that land. We only need one, or probably not even one, labour unit to, to farm a thousand hectares of this cropping. So that's all. This further and further automation will just see, you know, the countryside becoming more and more um, quiet. I guess. And, and I think the only parts of the countryside that we'll see sort of an upswing will probably be those sort of peri-urban fringe, you know, uh, places within an hour to two hours of the city. They'll become very popular, and they'll be full of people who are, you know, working in the country, uh, but commute to the city every now and then. So I think we'll, we'll all see a change, and I think that's just a natural occurrence, if we're honest, that's been happening for
1: 200 years. I don't Yeah, and part of that. It
2: just, it just might
1: speed up. And part of the challenge that comes with that automation, you say it might speed up, is uh, how long it takes for the machine to arrive. We're talking to a farmer recently. They ordered a cedar for this season, hasn't arrived yet, and they're not sure it'll even arrive for next season. I guess for farmers that are making decisions, even listening to this podcast, you know, with the Labor government in for at least the next three years, they might be thinking, well, maybe it's time we bite the bullet and put the order in because it could take that, you know, several years for us to get the machines we need.
2: Everything's taking longer. Uh, every, there's nothing that isn't coming on time anymore, and I think that's why when we're when we're looking at what we do, we're looking at the decisions that we do, is uh, we probably can't delay in a lot of cases. The issue we've got is that you you know if you're buying that Land Cruiser, which is I think a Land Cruiser is chewing your weight now for seventy nine, and um, I think. Um, it just means we've got to plan longer and longer in advance. We can't expect to be able to go and pick up a new piece of equipment and, or order it and get it two months later. It's order and get it a year later if you're lucky. That's just just the way that the, the, way that the whole logistical and supply chain environment is going to be uh, for, for quite some time, I imagine.
1: And is that something we you know expected? It just seems counterintuitive to me. We had this just-in-time ordering and logistics going on, even you know four or five, six years ago. But it's just I know it's because of you know uh, the GFC and shutdown of factories. China's a big player in that. Do you see it? This is going to be the new normal, or we, is it possible if the world roars into action again, we might see those sorts of timelines? You know, come back to what we were used to with just-in-time ordering.
2: But we had, but just, we used just in time ordering because it was the best. It allows things to be cheap, it allowed things to be quick, and that's why we did it. And the reality is, you know, at some point, that will still probably be the best option. At some point, if we get, if we get beyond this uncertainty, and really, just in time supply chains broke down in basically February 2020. When COVID hit. And China closed down. Supply chains were munted, and that's what happened. Is we ended up with the uh, just-in-time breaking down, and it's probably still when it works, it works, and it worked for forty years, fifty years. But the reality is that it's not working now, and uh, that's what the pandemic has done. But we could see that go back to normal, you know, once. A bunch of things repair themselves because it takes time. Because when you think about it, yeah, you've had three months in China where they've been locked down and containers really haven't been moving at anywhere near the same pace. So then there's a sort of a as China reopens, there's a bit of a burp or a, a cough as all these container ships leave China, and then you get the blockages at all the ports at destination. So these things take a long time to sort of unravel because that is the extent of the disruption that we've had for the last two years. And I think this sort of disruption will have issues for uh, probably the next year, two years.
0: Do you not, do you not think, though, that, that part of the experience we saw with that supply chain disruption through COVID has made some consider being reliant just on, like, like the, having a primary reliance on one particular um, country or one particular trading partner, or, uh, yeah, you know, one, yeah, one particular yeah, yeah. supplier. You know, has is, is it made people consider human
2: nature, mate? Human nature, isn't it? Like, like let's say, for instance, we go. The world gets back to their normality, yeah. And uh, and Jimmy who buys bearings, yeah. He, he he gets bearings made in some factory in Adelaide, yeah. And he pays twelve dollars a bearing, yeah. But my supply chain's sorted. I know I've got those bearings. They're going to cost me $12. And uh, But I know if anything goes wrong, I'm still going to get them for $12. However, Angus down the road, you know, supply chains are back to normal and he starts getting those bearings from China for $2. Well, who's got the competitive advantage? Angus with his $2 bearings. And that's what will happen is we'll get back to the reality of It'll be the cheapest who wins the business, and and whilst we might talk of, at the moment, we're all concerned about um, supply chains and all this kind of stuff. But once supply chains fix themselves, it'll be back to a case of well, what's the cheapest we can get our product built at, and in many cases, it's not going to be building in Australia. In Australia. You know what I
0: mean? Yeah. yeah well, from that perspective, though, then this, this this it sounds like it'll be a bit of a pipe dream to to reinvigorate. Any other form of manufacturing in Australia, because you know we are a high-wage country um, compared compared to our near, nearest neighbours in into the southeast of Asia. So, you know that's part of the reason why we saw the decline of the you know car industry and other manufacturing industries. I mean, from that perspective, I think the meat processing industry is probably the um, you know the well, the only car or the largest manufacturing-style employer would be would be that sector. Yeah. Well, I, was
2: talking, I was talking to somebody this morning, yeah, and they got their son a job on a construction site in Melbourne, a uh, labourer, moving bricks, 150 grand a year. <laughs> and I'm looking at my wage and thinking, jeez, maybe it's time for me to start testing bricks around. But, but the reality is that, well, like it's hard work, you know, labouring is hard work, but it's cleaner than working in an abattoir. So, so how are we going to get out our workers when they can go work labouring for 150? That's that's a professional level wage, no scale.
0: So, the, so, so a a, bri- a labourer in a, a brick construction place is earning half the wage of a radio presenter, Ricky
1: uh depends which just depends which <laughs> presenter you're talking to. Not this one, <laughs> certainly not this one. uh yeah. Look, it's it. Uh, Mark, Andrew, you would probably talk about it. that's just classic supply and demand at the end of the day as well. But I know you know in politics over the way I was previously involved, we were talking about this. You know, tradespeople and you know the, the looming shortage because we had a whole lot of young people that were looking at potentially you know doing a profession of some sort at university. But uh, we, we did. Were we going to have enough tradies, the bricklayers and that sort of thing? And now those chick- seem to have come home to roost.
2: Yeah, well, this particular guy, uh, he was telling me his son is a qualified teacher. Why are you going to work in a, in a school for 80 grand or 90 grand? I mean, he'll lug bricks around for 150.
1: And generally, so the, think, the bricks generally behave better too. Yeah,
2: <laughs> And, I, 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 and you, finish, you finish work at 4 or 5 o'clock and that's you done. Yeah, Nothing else to think about it. So, but I, so I think that the whole manufacturing industry really is, well, A, where are you going to get the staff from, for anything that requires staff, no. the investment money. Because, no. uh, you know, you could end up investing in, you know, Jimmy's bearing factory in Adelaide, and then you put your $100 million into investing in that plant, and then in five years' time, China reopens, and you end up with, you know, a white elephant. The other thing to think about as well is, China was getting to the stage where it couldn't fill its factories. China was outsourcing its production to, to various countries around the world. Bangladesh, you know, the number of factories getting built in Tanzania, uh, basically because China was too expensive for labor compared to compared to Africa. So, you know, how are we going to compete when China is too expensive for many for many manufacturing jobs? You know, it's 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 a nice it's a nice idea I think and maybe where we should be focusing on is maybe not think about those things like bearings but think of the real high end high tech uh, space components engineering sort of stuff. like Norway or you know even the UK where its production is its manufacturing is really focused on high end technical stuff with high values, not widgets and gizmos.
1: I guess something else, Andrew, we shouldn't kid ourselves about is, uh, especially in Victoria, we saw during you know six lockdowns, a whole lot of people leave Melbourne and head out to the regions. But that's not a labour force, I think. Uh, it's. I don't think anyone would say that's a labour force that could work in sort of regional factories or on farms or that sort of thing. These are the tree changes and lifestyle changes, aren't they, these people? the The picture of rural Australia in 2022 is probably a whole lot of people who've made a lifestyle choice. They can zoom in or whatever else for their... A city-based job, uh, and they're really just looking for the country lifestyle rather than country labour. Yeah,
2: absolutely. absolutely. They're not going to work in a chicken farm. They're going to be sitting there doing strategy documents for somebody in Melbourne or accounts for somebody. They're not going to be working at a chicken farm. They're they're white-collar professionals. Uh, But they're also, that changes the whole demographic, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they want the same sort of things
1: that they have in the city, whether well, that's good, yeah, Yep, soy two lattes pies, and that, coffee, sort of yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing.
2: Yeah.
1: Part, part of part of that aspect, though, it is a bit of a – the, the work-from-home
0: component is a bit of a two-edged sword, and I know that's what's driven a lot of this um, move to the, the regional hub, so to speak, is because you, if you've got the internet connection and you're, you're still within striking distance of getting into the city if you need to, but you might only go in one day or two days a week or every fortnight or something, but the more and more you have the flexibility to work from home, if your job allows that, and you can do your job adequately working from home, the the other side of this, the the sword, I guess, the other the other edge of it is that means that that job you do could also be outsourced to somewhere else. That's, you know, that's, that's in a lower income country if, if the skills are there as well for that job. Um, so yeah, you know, that is that is a probably you know, unintended consequence of, of having the flexibility of working from home. Could be that you could be outsourced yourself to a yeah, a, a country where they've got a skilled worker that can do your job and do it from home in India or Vietnam or the Philippines or somewhere else?
2: I think that's what we've seen in the last two years is just the fact that you can work from anywhere. You know, we're having this conversation in three different areas. It's easy. I could be in the UK just now, and you wouldn't know any different. Yeah, so I, I was- think it's...
1: That's, that's what it's taught us. Yeah. I was working on uh, at a school during the pandemic and um, we were wanting to do a video fly-through of an extension of the school we were doing. You put it out on... Um Oh, I've forgotten the name of the app now, but uh, you know I, we had bidders from you know every part of the world, the Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, people from uh, you know all parts of uh, Eastern Europe and you know naturally uh, as you talk about supply and demand, we just looked at the product they produced and if they are equal then you looked at price you went well th- this guy's cheaper so uh, let's go with him. So those are the that's the reality of the modern working world for I guess that sort of white- collar digital product uh, you can be based you know in rural Australia and doing that work.
2: Exactly, 100%. I think we're probably coming up to an hour.
1: Uh, we got I've got fifty on my uh, my clock here. Um, I was going to ask about um, whether uh, something else maybe we shouldn't kid ourselves about is that whether the government federally would or even states will invest heavily in the supply chain improvements on road or rail for our farmers to get product out. Uh, do you see there'd be there'd be any reason for that to be a priority for governments to you know um, supercharge inland rail or the Murray Basin rail project or that sort of thing? You know why would they spend that in the current environment we're in?
0: It's, it's a priority before the election, and then it fades away from being a priority usually after the elections. The normal history there, and that's why nothing gets done on those infrastructure projects. Uh, but I, th- I think it's too early to see either way. You know, I think
2: uh, there is still a whole bunch of legacy projects in in the line like that. Inland rail project is still going ahead. Um, but I guess the other thing as well is that we do have a. <laughs> We do have a, an issue with, say, getting our grains out of the country at the moment. Yeah? It's difficult to get our grains out because we've produced so much. Yeah, and, but that's not 100 percent just an inland issue. That's a port infrastructure issue as yeah. well, and those are privately owned ports, and it's up to private operators to expand those ports. But again, it comes back to that investment. You know, if I'm Jimmy the grain trader, yeah, and I say, look, I'm going to, uh, you know, put into a new port in Victoria, yeah? Well, that might be a good investment decision whilst we're producing, you know, a 33 million ton wheat crop. But when you actually start to look at it and say, well, okay, by the time this is built, we could be in a drought and we'll get no tines for it. Because as often as we produce, you know, a 33 million ton crop, we can also produce a 17 million ton crop. And so, You know, you'd be be brave to sort of invest in infrastructure at the moment because you'd only be looking at it from the point of view of, well, we need it just now. Well, okay, well, if you build it, you might not need it by the time you've built it.
1: It's a bit of like a reverse situation to the desalination plants, like say in Adelaide or in Melbourne is that they're rarely being used because you you spend a lot of money for a contingency.
2: And and that's fine, but I I guess that's a government you know government spending and 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 governments spend money on things that are a potential risk. And the desalinization plant, you know when we have a really big drought, we'll be we'll be pretty thankful that we' got it if we have a super drought type of thing, yeah. But from a private investment point of view, right, well you can't just you know invest millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars or billions in things that are for contingency planning. That's just not the reality of, of commercial operations.
1: Yeah, that's what you're saying with the ports. uh, There's not a likelihood as private operations that they're going to do what a government might do like with desal and go, well, look, we need to scale up the port because it's not really costing the port anything. If anything, they're doing brilliantly out of the fact they've got so much that needs to move through the port.
2: Yeah, well, look, I I think the only exception is places like in in South Australia is actually getting investment in ports, And largely that's off the back of the probably wasn't a large enough export capacity there previously. But other places like Western Australia... Generally got the capacity. Uh, New South Wales got the capacity for, for most years, uh, and South Australia was probably a bit lagging behind, and it's and, and getting that investment, but it's um, investment goes where it's needed, and, and where there's, a, a, again, a lack of supply.
1: I thought I might, before we go, get out of you guys some sort of predictions of or things that people might not be seeing in twenty twenty three that might suddenly emerge as a major issue. Do you want to sort of throw throw a dart at that dartboard and tell us what we might not be expecting that's going to come our way next year?
0: I think uh, I think one thing that's you know that that's been front of mind and and a concern is uh, the, the biosecurity threats that we're on our are on our border. I think the risk factors of getting something into the country like a foot and mouth disease or a lumpy skin disease, I think it's going to be around for, for into 2023. And, um, certainly by, um, talking to the experts in those fields, it sounds like the risk factors had increased because of the proximity. So, um, that's a potential, um, big thing that could occur that could be a big shock to the, uh, to the livestock space for sure. And what you- I think next year, the
2: only thing that I think, and I can pretty much guarantee this, is there's going to be so much uncertainty uh, that it's going to be almost impossible to predict. And and we've had a lot of uncertainty the last two years, and I think that uncertain environment and volatility and you know, unusual events will continue. I think we'll, we'll, we'll see that as we go into 2023.
1: Yeah, all, all I would say was that I reckon that uh, this is probably our last solid La Nina year and then uh, El Nino, it won't bite hard, I think, in the first year, But so we won't see the immediate impacts, but those squeezes on input costs and maybe a tapering down for some of the uh, output prices we're getting is going to see the farming sector, I think, uh, start to realise we we've need to invest well from the 2022 and backwards because it's going to get tighter, I reckon, from 2023 forwards.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The the, uh, the climate aspect there is, I uh, think it'd be most surprising to continue to see the great seasons we've had now three years in a row. Um, yeah, it's going to come a time where we're going to be in a, in a drought phase within the next you know three to four years, I would suspect, and it could be a couple of years worth, so that's going to put some pressure on.
1: Yep, for sure. Well, we'll have those up there on the podcast, on the Egg Watchers podcast and the Flow podcast for posterity. We'll see how right we were in 2023, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ricky. See
0: when you got see when you got nothing on,
1: mate. Cheers. <laughs>